Well, let's pray. Well, Father, we come before you just grateful that we can gather today and collectively listen to your word. And Father, as we just talk about the act of listening and why listening is um, and how we listen is just so essential to our spiritual life, that you'll give a special grace to understand and comprehend and appreciate the power of the word to shine and to expose and to illumine, and that all of us will be changed and transformed by it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I wanted to uh, start my, my sermon by reading you an excerpt from a very important article from the Babylon Bee. The title is, Church Rolls Out New Sleep Number Pews. Ludington, Michigan. Church of the Harbor unveiled its new sleek number pews for congregants this past Sunday, becoming the first church in the nation to offer personalized, adjustable sleep options for members. While many churches force you to try to get comfortable on a hard pew or chair, this church wants to revolutionize the way you sleep during a service. (laughs) Attendees entering the building will be handed their own wireless remote, which they can use to tweak their own sleep number pew to their heart's content. Quote, Finally, you can adjust your pew to the optimal level of resistance and incline for conking out during the pastor's message, said a deacon as he demonstrated his favorite sleep number pew in the back row. For instance, I like to recline almost all the way down. also like a little resistance. I want my pew to be as soft as a seeker-sensitive gospel message. Now, satire always have a, has a hint of truth to it, doesn't it, right? And this is kind of bringing up the, the bigger question of why go through the trouble of getting up on Sunday morning, getting dressed, sitting in on a message if you're going to sleep through it. Now, some of you are already convicted, and I can make eye contact. Might want to drink some extra coffee today because this is not the sermon to sleep through, right? Now, most of you, when you are here, you listen with eagerness and attentiveness because you love the Word of God and you want to hear it and obey it. But there are some of you who are just being honest, you might as well sleep through the sermon. You're here perhaps because your parents have dragged you here. Or it could be um, church is a, a real social outlet for you. And the price you pay for being a part of this community is tolerating the sermon so that you can hang out with your friends or make new friends afterwards. Or perhaps you like to be entertained by the message. You find Pastor Dave funny, interesting, charismatic, and humble. We all have different reasons for listening, but here's the question I want to ask you today. It's the title of the sermon. Why are you listening? Why are you listening? Why are you looking at me right now with your ears open, listening to what I have to say? With that in mind, I want you to listen in or read the teaching of Jesus in Luke 8, 16 through 18. No one after lighting a lamp covers it with a jar 
or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. Take care, then, how you hear. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he thinks that he has will be taken away. Now, this proverb follows the parable of the soils, right? You guys remember the parable of the soils? Sower went out to sow. The seed is the word of God, the message of the kingdom. He sows it generously. It falls on the pavement, it falls on the rocky soil, it falls on the weedy soil, and the good soil, and you have different reactions, right? The rocky soil, what happens to the seed there? It's crushed, plucked away. And then you have the rocky soil, it it grows up immediately, then the sun beats it down, and it fades away. And then you have the weedy soil, where it grows along with the weeds, and it gets choked out, and then you have the good soil, which yields a hundred yield. Now, Jesus is restating this, where instead of likening the word of God to seed, he likens it to light, right? I mean, light changes the way you see things. It's more important than you know. He likens the word to to light, and, and he's making a point that when people are exposed to the light, the light of God's truth and God's word, You need to take care with what you do with it. You see, why you listen often determines how you listen. Why you listen determines how you listen. When the light is exposed, when you are exposed to the light, does it soften or harden you? Does it change and transform you or do you ignore it? Why you listen determines how you listen. So what we're going to do is we're going to walk through this saying of Jesus And talk about just the impact of light exposure. And you see, there's three ways that exposure to the light impacts you. Exposure to the word illumines. Exposure to the word reveals. And exposure to the word will soften or harden your heart. You see, every time you are exposed to the light, to the word of God, there is a decision to be made, isn't there? Will you ignore it? Or will you accept it? Will you suppress it? Or will you receive it? Why are you listening to this message right now? So what we're going to do is we're going to go through this and then have some reflections on just how the Word of God changes us. We're going to start with exposure to the Word illumines. Look at verse 16 with me. No one, after lighting a lamp, covers it with a jar... Or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see. So Jesus is using a, a common sense proverb with a lamp. Right? You know the look, you know, the magic lamp that the genie comes out of? That was a very common way of illuminating. They usually made it out of clay or have a terracotta plant, it would or terracotta uh, lamp, where there'd be a, a place to put the oil, then kind of an elongated stem. You'd put the wick in the nozzle, and you'd light the wick, and then just keep on replenishing it with olive oil, and it would give light to all the house. And so Jesus is making a common sense statement, right? If you light a candle, if you light a lamp, 
You don't put it under the bed. You don't put it under a bowl. That defeats the entire purpose of lighting the light. Agreed? Years ago, uh, we took a spring break trip. And we were going to see the Creation Museum. And since we were in Kentucky, we are going to see Mammoth Cave. Now, this was a long time ago before they built the Ark Encounter, just to give you, you know, a sense of timing. And so we are in Mammoth Cave, and we take this guided tour. Naturally, they have it all lit up. But then they're going to do an object lesson. And the ranger turned off the lights. Naturally, this terrified my young children. But he made a point. And then he, he lit a lighter, and it was amazing the reach of just one little flicker flame of light. Have you guys ever been in absolute darkness, like can't see your hand in front of you, darkness? It, it, yeah, exactly. It is terrifying. But the light gives you a sense of your surroundings and even a way out. And so when you read in Luke about the darkness, obviously the world is a dark place in that it's um, basically a bastion of sin and evil, but there's another sense where he uses darkness. Darkness is a place of ignorance. Remember when, when Simeon, he's uh, the man at the temple who was, it was prophesied that he would see the Messiah. Jesus is presented at the temple Simeon knows who he is dealing with, and this is what he says in, in Luke 2, 29-32. Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. And here's a key point, verse 32. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. These Gentiles have no clue about the God of the Bible. And yet Jesus will be a light of revelation. When people see Jesus and hear Jesus and, and contemplate Jesus, there is a light, a way of escape, a way out of the cave, out of the darkness. And so Jesus is making a point. He is the light. And the point of the light, himself and his word, is that you put it on a lampstand, you, you put it in a place where it gets maximum exposure. See, Jesus is not looking at building some sort of secret society. He came to reveal, not to conceal. Now, some religions are built around a secret society. You guys ever heard of Scientology? It's big in LA. My kids are actually born across the street from the Scientology Center on Sunset Boulevard. Interesting place. But the way Scientology works is to advance in your knowledge, you have to pay large sums of money. In fact, one ex-Scientologist says that he spent over $600,000 over, I think, a four-year period to rise in his understanding. And, and the only way that works is if you make sure that nobody else gets access unless you pay for it. See, Jesus did not come for a pay-to-play. He made himself available to all. Now, it is true that he did come to speak in parables. But the answer key was always there. Agreed? 
He spoke in parables, and maybe people didn't understand it, but if they came to Jesus like the disciples did, they could. He had a very public ministry. It is open for all. And see, the reason why this is important is when you look at the parable of the seeds, some of you farmers might think to yourself, that guy is sure wasting a lot of seed. Wouldn't it be better for him to identify the weedy soil and the rocky soil so he can devote all of the seed to the good soil? Right, has that ever crossed your mind? Where sometimes you might want to do maybe a, 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 a self-sifting um, gospel presentation where you assessed whether or not the person will convert before you share the gospel with them. For instance, you see one man who, who grew up in a stable family. He drives a pickup truck and is a registered Republican. And you think he is not far from the kingdom of God. Then you have somebody else who drives a hybrid, has 50 bumper stickers on the back of her car, dump Trump, coexist, compost happens. And you think, there's no way that person is going to become a Christian. Guilty of that? But what Jesus is saying is you let the light shine. And then you see who responds to the light. Don't say no for people. Don't say no for people. Let the light shine. The light illumines. It has an impact. And it will change the hearts of people as they hear it. And, and this means it's important to have maybe a, a public ministry. I think there was a school of thought, especially in the 90s and early 2000s, that you almost had to be this undercover Christian to infiltrate you had to earn the right to speak the gospel. Churches became a place where there was a little life coaching, a lot of life coaching with a little bit of scripture. Instead of just being open and honest and transparent about who you are, what you believe, and the gospel message, you let the light shine. You hold it up on a lampstand. You don't try to conceal it or just give people a little bit of light and just see if they want more of it. You let the light shine and you let them decide how they will respond. Now, some respond really well, and some respond with rejection, because when the light does shine, it has an impact. As we see, exposure to the word reveals. It reveals. Look at verse 17. For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to the light. You see, Jesus is teaching has a way of exposing the heart. It has a way of exposing the heart. When, when you preach the word at somebody, something happens within them. Something happens within them. In Isaiah 55, one of the great chapters of the Bible, the prophet through the Lord, the Lord through the prophet is comforting his people Israel, with promises of restoration. And there might be a tendency for people to be a little bit cynical and second-guess whether or not this will really happen, but this is what he says in Isaiah 55, 10 through 11. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return 
there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and the bread to the eater. So shall my word that goes out from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the things for which I sent it. Don't you love that? God's word does not return void. He has a purpose for every revelation that comes from his mouth. In this case, he promises that all these glorious prophecies will be realized, that they will come to pass. There is a purpose for the word. Now, it's obvious when we are comforted by the word, right? We see that purpose, but, but what happens when people reject it? Ezekiel was a man who was called to be a watchman. He was to warn a disobedient people of the judgment to come. And this is what the Lord tells him. He says in Ezekiel 3.18, If I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and give him no warning nor speak to warn the wicked person of his wicked way in order to save his life, that wicked person shall die for his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. Ezekiel, if you don't tell people this, they will die and it will be your fault. Now the implication is this. If you warn people and they die, whose fault is it now? It's their fault. You see, when you tell people the bad news before you tell the good news, you're basically warning them of the wrath to come so that when they are judged, whose fault is it? It's their fault. The word of God does not return void because it vindicates God's judgment. Paul, in 2 Corinthians 2, 15 through 16, He likens uh, the gospel to the aroma of incense during a Roman triumph. Now, for the uninitiated, a Roman triumph was a civic celebration, usually, almost always, in honor of a general who achieved some great victory for the Roman Empire. They'd deck out the whole city. They would sacrifice animals. They would burn incense. There was a lot of aroma going on. And during this event, they would have captive soldiers and victorious soldiers and diplomats and then the Roman general who won all be paraded throughout the city. And this is what Paul is saying. He likens the gospel ministry to the smell, to the aroma of a triumph. And he says this in 2 Corinthians 2, 15 through 16. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to one the fragrance of life, of death to death, and to the other the fragrance of life for life. So if you are a defeated captive and you smell that aroma, that smell, that aroma is a sign that you're going to be sacrificed at the end of this. You will be executed. That's death. But for the victorious soldier, that incense, that's the aroma of victory. Right? When you share the gospel with someone, some people will hear it and live, and that is the best news they've ever heard, where other people will hear it, and it is a reminder of the judgment to come because they rejected it. The word of God doesn't return void. Jesus says in John three nineteen through 20, and this is judgment. Actually, this is John saying this. And this is judgment. The light has come into the world 
And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. Right? People who do evil things, you turn on the light, you can't hide anymore. You are exposed, it's out in the open. You see, when you shine the light of God's word on someone, when you are exposed to the light of the word, it often shows you things about yourself that you don't want to deal with. I look at um, how many people respond to Jesus' teachings on forgiveness. Now, you would think that forgiveness is one of those happy doctrines. Everybody loves a good tale of forgiveness. It's something that we all love it when it's done to us. But it becomes very different when we're called to do that for other people. Agreed? I mean, I've seen people just get downright angry when I bring up the parable of the unforgiving servant. You know the story? You have two servants. One is forgiven billions of dollars. He is delighted in the newfound forgiveness he got from his master. Then he finds somebody who owes him tens of thousands of dollars and throws him into debtor's prison. And then the person who was forgiven billions of dollars has the forgiveness revoked. And the message is this, if you don't forgive, you will not be forgiven. And what's really interesting about that parable is it makes it very clear that the basis of Christian forgiveness is that we are greater sinners than we know. And so when you tell somebody you need to forgive because God has forgiven you, and they can't get over it, what that does is it shines the light on their self-righteousness. How can you ask me to forgive when they have done that to me? And as if they're saying that the sin against them is greater than their sin against God. Does that make sense? And that's just one doctrine. That's just forgiveness. There's many other doctrines that when the light of Scripture is shined upon people, it just forces their response. You might think that we live in a community of good, loving, God-fearing people, but then you show them certain passages uh, from Scripture, and it's like there's daggers in their eyes and the fangs drop. Who are you to tell me what to do? Right? The light exposes. It doesn't return void. So every time this word is preached, you need to ask, why am I listening? Why am I listening? Because there is a real danger if you listen with no intention of doing anything about it. And that brings us to the final point. Exposure to the word forces a choice. Exposure to the word forces a choice. Take care then how you hear. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he thinks he has will be taken away. So those who hear the word of God and think, this is awesome, will get access to more. You are discouraged. Perhaps you have um, been diagnosed with some chronic condition that will never get better. But then you read Luke 5.21, Blessed are those who weep, for you shall laugh. You weep now, but in the future there is joy for you. And you're like, this is awesome. What else is in here? 
and you discover the Psalms. Then you read through the Psalms, and it's just this great source of comfort and nearness. And that drives you to read, let's say, Revelation about how God wins in the end. And to more, you, you just want more. I mean, this is a source of life that comforts you, that changes you, that transforms you. If that's your heart, Jesus is going to say, hey, have more of it. Have all you want. It's all yours. But then there's some people who, when they read uh, the Scriptures... There's some resistance. They just read, love your enemies. Oh, boy. And you think about your enemy. They used to be your friend. You worked together. One day during lunch, you had a candid conversation about how you're not sure if you're cut out for this and that maybe you should start looking for other opportunities and other places of employment. A month later... Your boss approaches you and says, you know what, we're looking to promote somebody for this new position. We think you're a great candidate. I would like you to apply. And so you apply. Well, it turns out that you don't get it. And everybody else is shocked that you didn't get it. But you know who got it? Your friend. Okay, you're happy for your friend because, you know, that's the kind of person you are. Then you talk to your boss. And your boss says, well, I mean, I know you applied, but... I heard somewhere that you didn't think you were cut out for this company and you thought you might want to look elsewhere. When you remove the knife from your back, you make some personal vows and you have some revenge fantasies. And this is what you say, I know I'm supposed to love my enemy, but it doesn't mean I have to like my enemy. You see what you just did there? I'm going to replace... This clear command, I'm going to do my own tweak on it so that I'm still obedient. You see, when people read the scripture and they start to silently explain it away, do you know what happens to their heart? There's a saying that those who fall into adultery don't fall far, right? There's a bunch of little decisions along the way. Those who fall into apostasy don't fall far. You don't go from going to church every week, Sunday school every week, having a daily quiet time, always obeying the scripture, or at least doing it consistently, going to Bible study to all of a sudden falling off the faith, right? Those who fall into apostasy don't fall far, is making these little tiny decisions. And, and every time you read the scripture, you encounter the scripture that challenges you when you try to explain it away or when you disobey it, What's going to happen to your heart? It will harden. And what little that was there will eventually be taken away. Now, a lot of times we don't realize that we are doing this. Okay, we don't really realize that we are, we are doing this. But I want to give like maybe three ways that people harden their heart without even knowing it. Okay? When people are exposed to the word, they tend to harden their heart without even knowing it. One way is when you engage the scriptures, you engage it superficially. You engage it superficially. Many Christians believe that they understand the scriptures when in reality they don't. They have what I call an osmosis understanding of scripture. You know, they basically have absorbed Christian culture and the Christian perspective 
because of the community that they're a part of. They've never taken the time to really internalize it and put the pieces together. For instance, how many of you, raise your hand if you believe the Holy Spirit is divine and the third person of the Trinity? Raise your hand if you do that, okay? Okay, raise your hand if you don't. Looking for heretics here, okay? No heretics, good. Now, where could you prove that in Scripture? Right, where can you prove that in Scripture? Do, do you see the problem? A lot of times we just absorb this is the right answer, but we don't know how we arrive at it. And what that leads to is a real superficial understanding of the faith that can really be challenged. See, at some point in time, a kid who grows up and he learns all the Bible verses in Awana, you know, hears great teaching in, in the youth group, listens in on my sermons, they may think they know it all, but then they go off to college and they are in a secular philosophy class, and this is what they realize. They have a fifth grade understanding of theology that is being confronted with a college-age understanding of secularism. Who do you think will win? You see what I'm saying? Or there might be some people who, they talk to a very knowledgeable member of a cult or an alternate religion that is thoroughly prepared to do an intellectual assault on their religion. And what happens is they think they know Christianity. And so they read 20 books from the other perspective, but zero from their perspective because they think they know it perfectly. I've seen that multiple times. And what do you think happens? You see, as you grow, you need to deepen your understanding of the faith. As there is more light, you want to internalize it. I'm not saying that everybody has to be a theologian. But there is another level that all of us should seek to attain to deepen our understanding and to not be superficial and to be vulnerable. Okay, so that's one way is you just read it superficially and you don't do anything about it. That's a problem. Secondly, you engage in it disobediently. You engage in it disobediently. You read something that convicts you in scripture we use the forgiveness example for instance and you you change the meaning of forgiveness or loving your neighbor to suit your interest you, you begin to put god's word against each other right you ever heard the term red letter christians that's part of the bible that corrects the other part of the bible and so you have a tolerance for let's say sexual morality you might explain away um, certain acts of lying as necessary to accomplish some greater good. And eventually, how you live your life is out of alignment with what you teach about how to live your life. Your orthodoxy is at odds with orthopraxy. You don't practice what you preach, and so either, when you don't practice what you preach, there's a crisis, agreed? And you either change your practice or you change what you preach. See, every time you make a decision to be disobedient, even in the small area, those decisions begin to compound and grow that will force a crisis. You need to read obediently. And then thirdly, some people engage in the Bible cynically. They engage in it cynically. Now, a, a cynic is full of trust, distrust, and disdain. They are... They are suspicious. 
especially of people who claim to have authority. They are professional fault finders. Now, a, a term that's kind of risen in modern Christian lingo is exvangelical. You guys ever heard of exvangelical? These are former evangelicals who have left the faith, and they usually have gone towards uh, progressive Christianity or agnosticism or atheism. Uh, Joshua Harris, who wrote I Kissed Dating Goodbye and a bunch of other books, um, would be the most famous example of this. They're exvangelicals. Now, it used to be that when people left the faith, there were a number of reasons why. One, uh, the Christian faith was incompatible with our modern understanding of the world. Right? We all know miracles can't happen, so I can't believe in a gospel that's based off of a miracle like the resurrection. Uh, other people, later on, they might have left the faith because the moral demands were just way too high. Right? I can't give up this relationship. I want to keep Sundays to myself. That, that's just way too high. But nowadays, when you look at the reasons why people fade away from the faith, is ultimately this. They are not convinced that Christians actually believe what they're teaching. They have a cynical view. They believe that Christianity, specifically evangelical Christianity, is just a vehicle for grievances. It's a religious system that people use to, to justify their, their bigotry, right? And they will point to broad evangelical support for Trump as, a, as proof positive that Christians are a bunch of hypocrites who don't actually practice what they preach. Uh, that's why there's such a fixation on pastoral scandals, right? Here's this leader of a church. He's propped up, and look, he doesn't actually practice what he preached. And, and so there's a real cynical view towards evangelical Christianity, and part of this, I think, is really the, the fruit of this age, which is to trust no one, <laughs> right? Trust no one. Anybody who has any authority or power may use that against you at some point in time. In fact, studies have shown that cynical people often do so because they've been hurt or wounded in some way. I've been hurt or wounded by the church so I to make sure that that never, ever happens again. And so you begin to see authority figures cynically. You might read the Bible. And as you read the Bible and you see a hint of patriarchy, you think, of course they're going to say it, and you dismiss it. You see the exclusivity of Jesus Christ, and you think that's just a way to try to control people. You see the teaching on sexual ethics, and it's like, yep, that's just justifying bigotry right there. And so there's a cynical view of Scripture. Have you guys seen this? This is why whenever there's any hurt or disillusionment or disappointment, there's a, there's a danger of becoming cynical and reading things cynically. And this is a problem for people on the left or the right. Do you think people on the right have a problem with authority too? All right, let's just be honest. And so this is the problem. If you are cynical out of a desire for self-protection, you have to understand that's what you're doing. We're not called to protect ourselves. Ultimately, who protects us? The Lord, right? Psalm 37, 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Right? The Lord will protect you. Cynicism is a sorry way to protect yourself. Secondly, Cynicism is a very nice way of saying judgmentalism. Judgmentalism. 
Romans 14, 13, therefore let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. To be judgmental is to assume who's the judge. You're the judge. And your job is to judge who? To judge everybody else. And a lot of times, what cynics will do, well, they'll judge certain people, judge certain doctrines, to excuse themselves from having to abide by those authorities and by those doctrines. And ultimately, who's the worst for it? Cynicism is like this universal acid, right? You deconstruct all of reality so that you have nothing. The way to read Scripture, the way to read Scripture is to engage it in a humble way where it speaks, you want to hear and you want to listen. Now, I understand that you guys get a lot of input and scriptural inputs, right? Every Sunday, you listen to me drone on for 45 minutes. And you know what? There is a responsibility that I have. I can't assume that just because I'm preaching, you have to listen, right? There might be a school of thought that says, what I'm giving to you is good for you. It's biblical. So... The pastor can use syntax and word studies. And he's having the time of his life up there before the uninitiated was happening, right? The pastor begins to sound like Charlie Brown's teacher. You know what I'm saying? So there is a burden on a pastor to bring you the word in a way that's cooked and ready to consume. But there's another element where you have to think to yourself, well, why am I listening? In the sovereignty of God, I'm here in this room listening to this message right now. So you listen to this message. You listen to the Sunday school message, the communion meditation, your quiet times, your Bible studies, and and there's so much input that you think, I can't remember it all. For instance, what did I preach on two weeks ago? Do you remember? It wasn't me, it was Nate. Gotcha. No, my my wife mouthed, it was Nate, not you. She knew, right? Do you guys remember what I preached on last week? Okay, I barely remember, right? Honestly, for me, it just kind of goes... It just kind of flows through me. So does that mean that it's just a waste of time, that unless you can hear and retain every single word that's spoken, it's pointless? Well, I have some answers to that. Number one, it's important to remember that that quantity refreshes. Quantity refreshes. Before the Jews were going to enter the promised land, Joshua is told in Joshua 1.8, the book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written. Right? This is to be a constant source of meditation. And every time you get some new input, via your Bible study, your quiet time, the sermons or Sunday school, that's just more opportunities to meditate. Now, let's say you're you're hiking in Colorado and you see two potential sources of water. On one hand, you see a pond that's clearly been there for a while, and then a flowing stream. Where do you drink? The stream. You know, often there's a replenishment that goes through over and over again where, where it's like our mind gets rinsed as more water flows through it. Does that make sense? You may not remember everything, but more is sticking than you realize. And that brings us to the the next little hope for you is that quantity gives way to quality. It flows through, and you never know 
when the scripture passes through, when the insights pass through, there'll be times when the Holy Spirit will just grab that and point it out to you that this is what you need to learn. This is what you need to apply right now. It might be some insight that you picked up that you didn't pick up before. I mean, for those of you who read through the Bible in a year, it's like sometimes it's just new information. Something happens in your life, you think, I never really understood it because the Lord helps you to see that, apply it at that moment in time. Quantity gives way to quality. And then thirdly, questions give opportunities. Often the word has a great impact when you come to it with questions. Do I go to a gay wedding? What does the Bible say about fertility treatments? My eight-year-old wants to get baptized. What do I do? Why do I believe the Holy Spirit is divine? You go to the Bible for those answers, and that's often when the word really sinks deeply. When you're thinking about the scripture, when you're pondering it, and you're asking more and more questions. You see, in all of this, the light of Scripture is being exposed to you constantly. And what Jesus is saying is you need to take care what you hear. You are a steward of every word that is spoken to you. And you may not retain it all, but is it changing the way you see the world and when you see life? Is your, is your mind being transformed? In the words of Hebrews 5.14, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. That's what he's going for. See, part of being a good soil Christian is to be responsive to the word when it's implanted in you. When the light shows you something, do you respond to the light with humility and softness or do you just push it away? Do you want the light? Do you want to be exposed? Given the choice, what do you do with it? All that to say when you sit through a sermon or sit through a Sunday school or sit through a youth group or read your Bible, what would happen if you were to ask yourself this question? Why am I listening? Why am I reading? Is that fair? You just ask yourself, why am I listening? And if your heart is such that you want to be changed and transformed and you want the Lord to speak speak to you, and the Lord does speak, you know that, right? He speaks through his word. And as you listen and your heart is softening, you know what's going to happen? You're going to go back for more and have a greater appetite for it. The Bible is an acquired taste. It's not for everyone. But for those who want it, you can acquire it, and you acquire it by coming to light as often as as possible, allowing the light to show you who you really are so that you can be who Christ wants you to be. Let's pray. Well, Father, we come before you, and I pray that we will be good stewards of this message, that we will really consider what this message has shown us about ourselves, and that we will want to change what needs to be changed. Help us to crave, love, and abide by your light. In Jesus' name, amen.